Thanks, guys. <clears throat> God is good, amen? Uh, God is so faithful to us and to his people, the objects of his um, undying affection and pursuit and allegiance. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know if uh, you guys, we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about um, love. <laughs> uh, do you guys have a favorite love song? A uh, love song that you that maybe it defines you and your object of your affection for Olive and me. Uh, we our first dance at our wedding was to a song called "Stand by Me." Do you guys know that song? Yeah, when the night has come and the land is dark and the moon is the only light we'll see, I won't be afraid. No, I won't be afraid. Just as long as you stand, stand by me. Uh, beautiful song, so powerful, romantic, hopeful, uh, delightful song. For others of us in here, now there's songs that kind of characterize their relationship also. For the newly married uh, Seho and Jane, their song is Love and Learn by Stephen Curtis Chapman. I don't think probably none of us have heard that one, but that's their own special love song for each other. Uh, for Chris and Haley, it was a song called Let's Stay Together by Al Green. <laughs> that's their song. Like, yeah, this is our song. Uh, Eugene and Joyce, they uh, talk about well, they're the only one. We kind of let them get away. They did a Christian song called God Bless the Broken Road. Uh, God bless the broken road that led me straight to you. And as Joyce was recalling, she was like crying, like torrential downpour coming out of her eyes as she thought about God's love through Eugene. It's a beautiful thing for Josh and Samina, Etta James, at last. Right? That's their song, their special song. For Greg and Kathy Benj, it's just the way you look tonight by Frank Sinatra. This is a, the best one for me. Uh, Charlie and Janet, right? Janet said, uh, she, she told, immediately she said, um, oh, what was it that, what was the one that Janet said? Oh, Love Me Tender by Elvis. Elvis, Love Me Tender, that's our song. And then Charlie said, hey, you can take this however you want, but he wrote, Man of Sorrows. <laughs> so, what does that even mean? There's something about uh, how you could ask him later. I think he meant like we worship to this song, right? That's what he meant, not like. But love songs are powerful and they're evocative in the emotions that they bring out. We all, there's something that causes us to dream again and to think again and to love again and to hope in love as we hear these songs about love. They, They communicate something that we feel that is difficult at times for us to express. Today, I want to look at the greatest love song of all time. In fact, it's so great that it is called The Song of Songs, and it's found in the Bible. As you turn there, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Song of Songs. I want you to look there in your Bible because we're not going to throw it up on the screen because there's a lot of different verses that I want to look at. We're going to look at Song of Songs. We're going to start with chapter 1, but I need to warn, and I should have mentioned last week that we're going to be talking about this so that uh, some of you guys could, could be aware. Song of Songs is a book of the Bible, but it is all about love and sex and a celebration of these things. Typically, when you hear, oh my gosh, they're going to talk about sex in church, one of two things happen. One, so my, one of my uh, preaching professors used to say, if you're preaching and people are falling asleep, just say the word sex and people will wake up. 
So that's what some of y'all, that's your reaction, right? You're like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I didn't use, I don't usually come to church, but I'm glad I came today. Maybe some of y'all like that. The other reaction is that people are like, oh my goodness, why is he talking about that? That's so bad. That's like terrible. I can't believe they're talking about, why is he talking about that in church? If you read the uh, insert in your bulletin, the letter that I wrote, um, there are certain things that don't often get talked about in church that really need to get talked about in church because if we don't learn about it here or we don't learn about it in our homes, then we're going to learn about it from places that don't care about your soul. They care about your pocketbook. They care about your money. But they don't care about you, your life, your future, your marriage, your family. And so we're going to talk about it today in the safest and best context that we can as we look at it from the Song of Songs. Okay, so verse 1. Here we go. Solomon's Song of Songs. He's saying from the outset, this is the greatest song. You got all these love songs out there. This is the song of songs. Now, there's... Uh, some caveats here. This is it's a little bit tricky to read and to understand Song of Songs because we see this in the outset. Solomon's Song of Songs can mean a lot of different things. So if you say Paul's song, you could say Paul wrote this song. It's a song about Paul. It's a song for Paul. You don't know which, which uh, preposition goes with it. So the same thing is, here, is in view here. Some people say this was written by Solomon. Others say this was written about Solomon. Other people say this written for Solomon, but this is the first thing that we see here is we're not altogether sure who wrote this. There's three different views as to how we see the Song of Songs. Here's the first one, uh, and this is probably the traditional view, is that there's two characters in view here. There is the beloved, who is the woman, and there is the lover, who is the man. So the question is, Are these two characters, is one of them Solomon or is one of them not? The traditional view says, yeah, one of them is Solomon. He is the lover and he is pursuing the object of his loving affection and he's running after her. He is kind of weird because he he had 700, he had thousands of women, but he, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to learn about love from him, but they're saying this is it. So the, the, the view says he went from polygamy to monogamy as he found the one person that can satisfy him, the one person that he wants to give all of himself to. This is the first view. The second view says that Solomon is still the king in this picture, but there are two lovers, the same woman and a shepherd boy who is the love. And this is true love. Solomon is a foil of true love, trying to win her heart through pomp and circumstance, royalty, regalia, because he's a king, just like his father. I'm going to take you to be in my life, to be my wife. And there's a second view here. There's some people that believe this to be the view. A third view says, well, it wasn't really written by for Solomon and his things. But just like Ecclesiastes last week was attributed to Solomon because he was a man of great wisdom, in the same way, this poetic book of Song of Songs was written by someone under the guise of Solomon in order to show that, yeah, I am in a, writing it from an extremely, a standpoint of extreme wisdom, talking about it in the context of sex. So which is it? Uh, for today's purposes, we're going we're gonna to just go with the view that this is Solomon pursuing a love. Reason being in chapter 6, verse 13, it refers to the woman as the Shulamite woman. Shulamite is the feminine version of the name Solomon. So this is basically saying this is Mrs. Solomon. So for today, uh, we're going to say that Solomon is pursuing this woman. But all that to say, 
I don't think it really matters. What does matter, what does matter, is that this book is overflowing in expressions and descriptions of love and sexuality and sensuality within the context of marriage that shows that God loves the idea of sex and is recorded in the Bible in such a way that godliness and a healthy sexuality are not mutually exclusive things. In in fact, another way to say this is that you could be extremely godly and holy and be extremely delighting in sex as well. And so the Bible makes that first thing clear. Two things, two thoughts here. First thing is this. The Song of Songs shows us that sex is a beautiful gift to be enjoyed in its proper context. This is a full and pregnant statement. Song of Songs shows us the first thing, that sex is a beautiful gift to be enjoyed in its proper context. The way of the enemy, Satan, is to take good gifts that God has given and to distort them in order that they no longer, the expression of it no longer becomes good. For example, God made food to be a beautiful gift to us to enjoy. But when we overeat, we overindulge, we use food to be something that it, other than it ought to be, become gluttonous, we use it as a coping mechanism instead of going to God or going into community, then food becomes an idol and the good gift that God has given becomes something stripped out of its context, becomes a bad thing. Same thing is true with fellowship. Fellowship is a gift of God, beautiful gift. But when we use fellowship and turn that inward and sinfully, it becomes a click so that other people can't be welcomed in, then the good gift has become distorted. In the same way, in the same way, sex is a beautiful gift that God has given to us. But we as a world have distorted it. Satan has distorted it in order that it has become something other than it was originally intended to be. So let's look into the Song of Songs. There's three major parts to it. We're going to just kind of take this book apart for a little bit, and then I'm going to continue explaining what I mean when it's a beautiful gift. He begins in, in verse 2 again. The headings, these are not inspired by God, so they may not be necessarily correct. But she begins saying, this is my longing. I've seen this man. He is, oh my gosh, he's beautiful. He's amazing. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. So from the outset, she's longing for this man. So beautiful, so dreamy, so handsome. But at the same time, she expresses her insecurities. If you look in verse 6, she also says, do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the, of the vineyards. My own vineyard I have neglected. What is she saying? This is not like American culture where if you're tan, you're bronze, you're dark, tall, dark, handsome. In the ancient Near East, just like it is in Asia today, being dark is not a thing of beauty. Hey, you want to stay away from the sun, you know, in like Asian cultures, they're uh, boys and girls, they're men and women are like, the ideal is to be like, you know, to be like these white undershirts, like be completely, like your face looks like that, like you're a ghost. That's like a thing of beauty, right? That's the way it was in the Old Testament times also. To be tanned, to be dark was like, ooh, ugly, weird, don't, do that's yucky. And so this is what she is because for some reason she had to work in the fields. 
So she's working in the vineyards, and she, say, she say, uses this idea, I worked in their vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not taken care of. Saying, I worked in the fields, but I couldn't take care of myself. And so she's fearful. She's insecure. She says, don't look at me. Look, I'm yucky. I'm ugly. Don't look at me. That's what she's saying. Do not stare at me. Even so, even so, her lover looks at her in verse 15 and says, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes are doves. It's a beautiful pickup line to use for the object of your affection. Oh, I say this to all of you. Your eyes are like doves. What does that even mean? (laughs) The only thing I think of doves are they're white, right? So you got this dark woman with white eyes. That's kind of scary, but... (laughs) What, whatever it is, I'm not a poet of ancient Near Eastern literature and understand and all that stuff. But so she's expressing her longing and he's expressing his longing back. So they're together. They love each other. They're not yet married, but they're saying, oh, you know, I desire you. I want you. And then chapter two, verse four, he has taken me to the banquet hall and his banner over me is love. And everyone can see that he's in love with me. Down in verse 7, as much as they long for one another, she says, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the doves of the field. I don't know why she says that either. Usually we say, you know, I charge you by the powers of ultra, whatever she says, by the gazelles and the doves of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And she would say that two more times throughout the Song of Songs. In other words, don't awaken love before it's time. There's a proper time. There's a proper context. There's a right time, and now is not the right time. Think as much as you want it, as much as I want it, as much as we want it, don't awaken it until it's proper time. And so chapters 1, chapters 2 is a continuing of the description of their longing, their courtship, their dating, so to speak, but their courtship where they know they're going to get married, they want to be married, but they're guarding their purity in order that they don't compromise. In chapter 3, verse 5, same thing. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And then starting in chapter 3, verse 6, we see the beginning of their wedding night. Bum, bum, bum. Right From chapter 3, verse 6 until chapter 5, verse 1, we see this. Who is this coming from the desert like a column of smoke? Verse 7, look, it's Solomon's carriage. Verse 11, come out, you daughters of Zion. And look at King Solomon wearing the crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. And today, weddings are all about the bride, and they sing this song, dun, 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 here comes the bride. And they're like, who is she? Oh, my gosh, she's beautiful. In the ancient days, weddings were all about the groom. Isn't that weird? No one cared about the bride, really. They all cared about the groom. And so the music, dun, 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 here comes the groom. Who is it? It's Solomon. Oh, my gosh, look at him in all of his splendor. Come out, you daughters of Zion. Look at him on the day of his wedding. And so finally they're ready. And then chapter 4, he says, how beautiful are you, my darling? How beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. There he goes again. Your eyes are like doves. Your hair, check this out. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead, right? So husbands, tonight, right, this is what you say to your wife. When I think of a flock of 
goats descending from Mount Gilead, I think of like white things coming down, like Gandalf hair. <laughs> Dark woman, white, shiny eyes, Gandalf hair. That's not a picture of beauty to me, but for some reason he loves her. So chapter four, he's going off and they're both going on and they're talking about the beauty of one another. And then it begins to get really sensual from head to toe. He describes even the private parts of her body. She does the same thing in chapter five. But verse 12, he says to her, you are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. In other words, she's saying you guarded yourself until the night we got married. Verse 15, you are a garden fountain a well of flowing water. And then he says in verse 16, she says this, awake north wind and come south wind, blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. Mm. Beautiful. He's saying she's a garden. And all around there's fruit for him to enjoy. You were locked up, but now, bam, it's full rain. He's saying only within the proper context. Some of you are getting uncomfortable here, right? But this is a beautiful thing that God's, why is this in the Bible? Because God delights in giving this gift to his people. And in chapter 5 to the end, it talks about what marital love is all about. It's this powerful, beautiful thing. Just, I mean, if you understand poetry, you'll see it's a lot more in a pure and beautiful way, sensual, and unlike anything that we read in in, in many other parts of the Bible. But what is going on here? He talks about all of these things. See, the interesting thing, if you look in, Throughout the Bible, I think it's 63 times the word garden is used in the Bible. Okay, 63 times the word garden is used in the Bible. You know this, maybe you can think of a couple of times. That's easy. The Garden of Gethsemane in the Gospels and then the Garden of Eden in Genesis, right? 13 times in Genesis, I think, or I forget how many times. Genesis talks about the garden. The second most is the book of Isaiah, which talks about the garden eight times in 66 chapters. But in eight chapters here, the Song of Songs talks about garden six times. Why? Because as he's talking about the beauty of sex, he compares it to a garden, and immediately the readers and the hearers and the listeners are being taken back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis 1:28. there was a man and there was a woman. They were married. Chapter 2, verse 8 says they were in a garden, be fruitful and multiply, have sex, enjoy one another. At the end of chapter 2, they were naked and they were unashamed. So what Song of Songs is doing is it's taking us back into that place, saying you think, you think because your world has told you that sex is dirty, that God doesn't like it, that it's evil. And then we need to go back to the beginning before sin ever entered Sex was here before sin entered. When God looked at the world and everything he made, he said, it is good. He's saying sex is a beautiful, good gift. But he's also saying, he's also saying that because it's a precious gift, it must be protected. And what does that mean? You know this in in, in every sphere of life that the gifts that are important to you, 
you bring protection around them. Don't you do this? To, to me, the most precious gift that I had outside of people uh, in my life was probably my iPhone 5. And what happens when you don't protect your gifts? I let Elijah play with it. He looks at it, and one day he decided it would be fun to throw this on the ground. And so he threw it on the ground, and it cracked. And I looked at it, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is so sad. Because I wanted this gift to be shown off to everyone. I wanted it to be sleek and cool, and don't want to put a bulky uh, case and protection around it. And because I took that which was precious and allowed it to be treated as cheap, I felt the consequences of it. Therefore, when it was time for an upgrade, I got this new iPhone. I don't care if it weighs as much as a phone booth. I'm putting my protection around it because I learned my lesson that that which is precious needs to be protected. The thing is, our world has taken a precious gift like sex, and we've cheapened it, and we've distorted it, And we've ripped it out of its context so that that which is precious has been treated like something that is cheap. The context in which sex is to be enjoyed is to be enjoyed in the context of marriage between a husband and a wife. The only context in which this will work to become the beautiful thing that God intended it to be. You take a fire, right? fire, a beautiful thing in a fireplace. And you put that fire in a house, in a car, becomes destructive to the gift as well as to the people in it, to the people engaged in it, the people who indulge in that gift. So God is saying, listen, marriage and sex is a beautiful gift, <coughs> but it has to be enjoyed within its proper context. <clears throat> so what happened in time? So where, did we, where did we go wrong? There are some people who say, this is interesting, but some people pinpoint a specific time in history where it went wrong. Say 1968 <clears throat> was a year Woodstock came out. This festival, 800,000 people in a field in Woodstock. All of, most of them were high, singing songs of music, free love movement, birth control had come out so that finally... People could have sex and be no consequences. They wouldn't think about being pregnant. So all around, people were just hooking up. This hookup culture. From there, the boundaries with which God created, the protection with which God created, layer by layer, they were stripped away. And it wasn't just male and female, husband and wife in a marriage context. It was stripped of all of that. The protection came off and people said, just do what you want with it. It became seen more as an appetite to be satisfied and as a gift to be protected. The only rules in our culture today, as long as there's consenting people, then it's okay. Therefore, giving rise to premarital sex. I read this article. I don't know if you guys seen it this week. I don't know if it's true, but a Kenyan woman infected with HIV, she was drugged, got HIV. She was so angry at this man that her mission was to infect all the men on her campus with HIV. She had infected 234 people, and she wanted to take all of them down. Right? The world shows premarital sex as being this great, beautiful thing, but it never talks about the consequences. Affairs, doesn't matter that they're married as long as it's consensual. Pornography, 
crippling a generation of people that will not know how to have sex. Unrealistic expectations. Guys like John Mayer, the musician who's dated some of the most beautiful women in the world, says, I'd rather look at pornography than have a real woman because I don't know how to interact with them anymore. A generation swimming in sensuality. And they said Korea, by the, in, in like 50 years, there's going to be no population. Population is going to be defunct because they're not having children anymore for a lot of different reasons. Right? Music, media, TV shows are telling us that you can have your way, do whatever you want. Males and males, females and females together, as long as they're consensual. It's given right. You know what? You know what? The, you know what's happening in Germany now? Saying as long as it's consensual, pretty much, pretty much, incest has become legalized in Germany. As long as they're adults and they're consenting to it. In Iraq, in Iran, legalized pedophilia. It's not a crime anymore. All this given rise because we've taken the layers and the protection off of it, off of the gift of God to be enjoyed within its proper context. This should scare you. This scares me. But we've got to understand. We've got to understand what the world is trying to do. There's an enemy that seeks to steal, to kill, and to destroy life. And he's winning the day because we're giving ourselves to unbiblical teachings about sexuality. And it's crippling our people. And God's word is saying only within the proper context is this to be enjoyed. And when you take it out of the context of a committed relationship, male and female, people will tell you, you know, it's just, it's just between the two of us, it's so much more than that. And everyone who's ever engaged in any kind of sexual aversion, whether it be pornography or sexual sin with another person, you know that it's not just an appetite. That's why the devastation that you feel in the aftermath of these things The aftermath of this kind of a relationship is so heavy and it weighs on you. If it's just an appetite, you go out and you you, you eat all this food and, oh my gosh, I should stop here, but I'm going to eat 15 more pieces of chicken. You feel bad for the night, but it doesn't haunt you the rest of your life. But there are people who are haunted by their sexual past and it keeps on rising up. Why? Because it's so much, it's not an appetite. They've lied to you. It is a gift of God. 1 Corinthians 6.16 says that when two people have sex, they're committing themselves together. The two are becoming one in soul union, one with another. It is a covenant that you are making and God is in the midst of the. That's why every psychologist from Freud on down has said that the deepest part, there's a deep connection between sexuality and spirituality because it is such a deep part of who we are. God made us sexual, but he made it in its proper context. We're going to go on and see why it's such a powerful thing. But what the media doesn't tell us, it doesn't tell us the consequences that are incumbent in sex in context and sex outside of context. The most exhaustive study came out, I think, in, in the early 2000s, done by the University of Chicago about sexuality in America. It was the National Health and Social Uh, Social Life Survey, long-term, big-time study, and it basically said that the most satisfied people sexually are married couples. You don't see that on TV. 
Now, you don't see that on TV. All you see is the desperate housewife sleeping around with whoever it is that she can. And that's all it shows, that moment of heated passion, but it doesn't show the devastating effects on their children, on their marriages, on their culture, on our society. Fatherless children all around. That study shows that the people who had the highest rates of satisfaction, of feeling wanted, feeling loved, feeling close, feeling intimate, were married couples. They were also the least likely to feel afraid, to feel fearful, to feel worried, to feel dirty, to feel guilty. But that's not what media tells you. Just do whatever you want. The only context that's big enough to sustain the power of the sexual union is a marriage in which you are completely committed to one another, being naked and unashamed. That's It's the only context. Otherwise, we're playing with fire. The first thing that Song of Songs, and I'm only going to say two things today, so you don't have to worry, we're going to go until midnight. But the first thing that Song of Songs shows us that sex is a beautiful gift to be enjoyed in its proper context. The second thing, second thing that we see, that Song of Songs is a picture, right? A picture of the kind of intimacy that we can experience in our relationship with God. The kind of intimacy that we can experience in our relationship with God. Did you know that in the 1500s, in the 1600s, in the years leading up to the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, that as persecution began to strike the people of God, as they were standing up against the abuses of the Roman of the Catholic Church, as they were fleeing Bohemia, fleeing Switzerland, fleeing all these different places, Scotland, as persecution began to rail against the believers, the one book they said they clung to more than any other was the Song of Songs. Kind of weird, isn't it? John Huss, John Knox, when their lives were being threatened, they clung to this book because this book was a promise of the intimacy that they could have in their relationship with God. Did you know that for those who've had sexual intimacy, this is just an echo of the intimacy that God wants to have with his people. Just a faint glimpse, a picture, a parable, Tim Keller says, an illustration of the kind of intimacy and ecstasy that we can have in our relationship with God. That's what he wants. To satisfy your heart. To give you joy like nothing else, like no one else, like no other lover could. And the reason why there is this context of commitment between husband and wife is because it is a picture of the exclusivity God wants in our relationship with him. This is powerful stuff, y'all. The same reason God says, if you're married, don't go around sleeping with other people. Saying, this is a kind of exclusive relationship that I want with you. And if you're exclusive with me, 
then this is a kind of experience that you could have of deep, abiding intimacy, of just an explosion of joy, unlike anything that you know. Anyone who says Christianity is boring, is dry, is just this head thing, has no idea the God that they've come to encounter. See, something powerful happens. In chapter 1, you remember, she's like, I'm dark, don't even look at me. But in chapter 2, starting in chapter 2, there is a sense of confidence, of defiance, like take me away into your inner courts. Take me and have whatever you want with me. All of me is opened up to you. Take all of me. Why? Because there's a power in being loved in this way There's a power when we're loved by an altogether beautiful king. When he looks upon us in our brokenness, when he looks upon us in our shame, when he looks upon us in our dirtiness and he loves us, there's something that causes these fears and insecurities to just melt away. You experienced this? You look at God and you're like, God, how could you love me? Don't even look at me, God. I'm so filled with shame. I'm so dirty. I'm so ugly. I'm so filled with lust. I'm so filled with mistakes. This whole week I've messed up time and time again. I've, I've, I've given over to my lust time and time again. I've messed up throughout my past. God, you know my history. Why would you even look at me? Why would you even love me? You know the things that I did after school. You know the things that I did when I was in college. You know the things that I did at that party. You know the things that I've did. I've had abortions. I've slept around. I've done all of these things. Why would you love me? Why would you even look at me? God, I can't bear to stand in your presence. We're so filled with fear and insecurities and God looks upon us, the king of kings, the beautiful king that we long to be loved by, but we don't think it's possible. And he looks at us with a kind of love, it says, and in, in, in the kind of love it says, and he says, I rejoice over you. You are my beloved. In you, there are no flaws. There are no flaws. Uh, your past has no bearing on my love. Isn't that what we long for? For someone to look at us in all of our brokenness, in all of our devastation, all of our pain, and all of our shame, to look at us and to say, you know what? I've never loved you more. That's what God says. That's what God says. That's why... That's the message of of Beauty and the Beast. I think so many Disney movies teach some some wrong values. But Beauty and the Beast says that there is this beastly creature who is so ashamed of the ugliness brought upon himself by the choices and the failures and the sins of his past that he can't dare to let anyone get near to him. And yet finally someone looks at him and she sees him for who he is underneath all of that stuff and she loves him. And the message of Disney in that movie is that there is a love possible that can free us from all of the disfigurements that sin has brought into our lives. That it can set us free in order that we can be loved so that ugliness disappears so that beauty, true beauty can come out. Do you believe that such a love exists? Do you believe that such a love is possible? Not just out there, but in your life. In your life, all of us who've made mistakes, all of us who've failed, that such a love is possible. That there's a love that can free us 
that can remove our spots, that we can be naked and unashamed again, that we could be naked for someone to look at us in all of our foolishness and all of our sin. The Father looks at us and he covers our shameful nakedness in order that we can be the object of eternal delight. I know there's a lot of us in here who've messed up. You desperately need to hear that there's a king of endless worth who loves you in such a way that when you understand and receive his love, that there's no time to hold on to those regrets. It's a love that the, that, that Crowder says, it's, a, it's like a hurricane and you're a tree in it. You're bending beneath the, the waves of his wind and mercy a powerful love unlike anything that the world could ever give that causes all of our past and all of our shame and all of our regrets to fade into our distant past to forever be forgotten. Isn't that the longing of every human heart? For someone to say, I love you, and then when we open up our hearts and open up our baggage and open up our past, that they say, I've never loved you more than I've loved you now. I want to uh, tell you uh, what a woman named Johnny Erickson Tata says about her wedding, about her wedding day. She was, uh, she's, she's famous. She was a, a woman who was paralyzed from the neck down in a swimming accident when she was a teenager, Ref, uh, just wheelchair for the rest of her life, wanted to kill her. So she said the hardest thing was I couldn't even kill myself, trapped in this body. But she found love, and this is what she said. This is powerful. As she describes her wedding day, she says, I felt awkward as my girlfriend strained to shift my paralyzed body into a cumbersome wedding gown. No amount of corsetting and binding my body gave me a perfect shape. The dress just didn't fit well. Then I was just wheeling my wheelchair into the church, I glanced down and noticed that I'd accidentally run over the hem of my dress, leaving a greasy tire mark. My paralyzed hands couldn't even hold the bouquet of daisies that lay off center on my lap. And my chair, though decorated for the wedding, was still a big, clunky, gray machine with belts, gears, and ball bearings. Certainly didn't feel like the picture-perfect bride in a bridal magazine. I inched my chair closer to the last pew to catch a glimpse of Ken in front. There he was, standing tall and stately in his formal attire. I saw him looking for me, craning his neck to look up the aisle. My face flushed, and I suddenly couldn't wait to be with him. I had seen my Beloved, the love in Ken's face had washed away all my feelings of unworthiness. I was his pure and perfect bride. How easy it is for us to think that we're utterly unlovely, especially to someone as lovely as Christ. But he loves us with the bright eyes of a bridegroom's love and cannot wait for the day we are united with him Forever, And we, unattractive, frightened, paralyzed, imperfect, yet wild with hope, come 
to the wedding feast of the Lamb. We feel inadequate, unworthy, yet our eyes are fixed on Christ. We are overwhelmed with emotion as we know that we are loved and accepted just as we are and that the wedding will bring about a transformation. The blood and water that flowed from his side has released us from our bondage, healed our brokenness, and cleansed us from our sin. We become the bride of Christ, not just in theory or potentially, but in reality. It's a beautiful picture of the love that Christ has for his people, for you and for me. It's not only in Song of Songs, but Ephesians 6, in every place where it teaches us about marriage. Paul writes, this is a profound mystery, but I'm not even talking about marriage. I'm talking about Christ and the church. It's this kind of an intimacy. God said, I want to give the world a picture of my undying love for them, of a love that accepts a beautiful lover, accepting a worthless bride simply because I am love. He says, what kind of a picture can I give? And so he created marriage. And he created sex to be a small yet imperfect picture of the intimate, ecstatic, joyful kind of love that is our relationship with him. Now, this is the longing of every human heart that we'd be loved in this kind of a way. And God says it's possible. And God says it's possible. And the more you understand this kind of a love and you soak under it and you sit under it and allow it to wash you clean, and all of the sins and all of the mistakes and all of the failures begin to wash away in light of his beauty, in light of his grace, in light of his love. The reality that we are, far, Jack Miller says, we are far more broken, far more dirty, far more sinful than we could ever dare to believe. But God in Christ loves us far more than we could ever dare to dream. Spurgeon says, Jesus Christ is a far greater Savior than you could ever imagine if you're, even when your thoughts are thinking their biggest and best thoughts. He's far greater than that. He wants to satisfy you with a kind of love that the world could never give. Let's pray together. Can we um, take some time to um, just pray to the Lord and just being completely honest with him? I know some of us in here carry the weight of feeling so ashamed because of things that you did to someone else. You feel guilty. You feel responsible. You feel burdened. If you don't, if you haven't, Right? You should, because you've robbed someone of something that was not yours. Maybe we need to confess, to repent, to feel the weight of what God sees our sin to be and then to turn away from that. Others of us, we felt that guilt. And God wants you to feel that no more because he redeems and he restores. He says, would you once and for all give that to me? in order that you could walk in freedom. Jesus Christ died for your sins 
You may not have forgiven yourself, but in the eyes of God, you are pure as the purest of pure can be. Don't hold on to your sin. Don't listen to the condemning lies of Satan. Be done with those once and for all. Others of us in here, maybe you have been taken advantage of and you feel the weight and the guilt and the shame of those things. Jesus knows your pain. He knows what it's like to be stripped naked and to be vulnerable at the will of another. Let his intimate experience of knowing what you feel like bring you into a place of intimacy and let him take your shame for you to take it upon himself in order that you could live in that no more. Maybe others in here feel just overcome by the heaviness of commitment made and commitment broken. Maybe some of you, it's not an explicit thing, but you entertain thoughts. You think, what if? You flirt. You mess around. Different things like that. You justify that. There's all of these things out of the proper context will lead to hurt and will lead to devastation. The cleansing fountain of the blood of Jesus is here for us to dive into today. To swim in that ocean of depths, the depths of the ocean of forgiveness, of grace, of mercy. In order that you could walk out of here free today. Let's take some time to pray for our own hearts right now. Relinquishing our past relinquishing our failures, relinquishing our sins, relinquishing the things that have happened to us. Let's surrender these to him and let's exchange it for the healing of God. Maybe for some of us it would help if you want to just lift your palms up to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm surrendering it all to you. Take me as I am and fill me. Remove from me that which is not of you and fill me with that which is of you. God, I want to be clean. I want to be pure. I want to be yours. I want to be yours. Give my heart to you from here on out to live devoted to you. Let's pray for a few moments together like that. Just be honest with the Lord. He knows it all. Just bring it to allow healing to come to our hearts right now. Let's pray for a couple moments. sexually broken generation. 
chances are the person that you're sitting next to has been hurt in some way. I hear far too many stories. Far too many stories. People that we would never expect. It just show me that we're so deeply broken in this area and we need help. We need healing. So let's pray for one another right now. To pray for healing, for cleansing, for purity, for strength in each other. Lord, help my brother, help my sister to be a child of holiness and of purity. At this I pray for my children almost every day. Lord, in a world of impurity, let them be pure of heart, of deed, of mind, and all that they are, all that they do. Let's pray for one another. Let's pray that we would be a healing place, a place of love, a place of grace, a place where God's love can wash over us. And let's pray for one another. Let's lift each other up. confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. This is the promise for those who have sinned and who confess that to you. But your word in verse 7 also tells us that the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin, not just those that we've committed, but sins that have been committed against us. Thank you, Lord God, that we can be free in you. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would break the chains, break the shackles, set us free to be a people who are whole, restored, renewed because of your grace in us. Lord, we give over to you our failures, our shortcomings, our mistakes, our sins, and we receive from you the restoration, the infilling, the purity that you've given to us, that you've won for us at the cross. May we live in the glorious freedom as children of God so that we might have healthy families, healthy marriages, healthy friendships, healthy brother and sister relationships within the church to the glory of God and to the joy of many and to the witness of a world that needs to see that there's a better way than what the world is living for. 
thank you for the gift of sex in context and thank you for all that it points to about your unending love for an undeserving people we love you because you've loved us first we pray all these things in jesus name